You're listening to audio from Holy Cross Church in Tucson, Arizona. To find more resources and learn more about our ministry, please visit holycrosstucson.com. We're continuing our series, Knowing Jesus. This is a smaller series within our year-long series in the Gospel of John. John's uh, the writer of this gospel narrative, the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. The whole purpose is to convince us to believe and follow Jesus. And that is that thread is all throughout Scripture, and we're looking at the "I am" sayings of Christ. So these these several um, sent phrases where Jesus says "I am" and then talks about who He is, and usually through analogy and metaphor. Uh, John chapter fifteen is where we'll be this morning, starting in verse one. This is what Jesus says: "I am the true vine." The Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my word abides in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this, my father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I've called you friends. For all that I have heard from the Father, I've made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. This is God's word. Wow, what an amazing portion of scripture. A lot in here. Uh, you know, when I, when I first moved to Arizona, there were many observations that I uh, found that were very distant from my growing up and my understanding of growing up in central Ohio. Pray for me, the Bengals are playing at one. Thank you. And um, These were normal things to Tucson culture when I moved here. They were very normal to Tucson culture, but very foreign to me, and I didn't quite understand them, and so uh, it was difficult. The the most obvious thing was people put gravel in their front yard. Like this... This was strange. I don't know if you've had people visit from other parts of the country and they say, what's up with, with all the rocks in your front yard? And you're like, well, that's just how you do it. It's called desert landscape. This is very normal. But for me, it was very strange. It looks like yards are just like radioactive in Tucson and nothing can grow. No life can grow. But now having been here for 22 years, it's completely normal, even sometimes beautiful. 
to have desert landscape. Another thing was something called the flip-flop. I bought my first pair of flip-flops in Tucson, Arizona. I know, <laughs> it's like, some of you, many of you are wearing them now. It's like, flip, this is what you do. It's part of the culture, completely normal. For me, it was so foreign. They were reefs. I love them. <laughs> These are common things to the culture and metaphors used in common language. And when they're used for an audience that understands, it hits, the point is hit home. And we need to understand that in this context. Obviously, the bearing fruit and vines and, and gardening is not so foreign to us, but these are common things to this first century culture used here. It's called viticulture. It's the, the, the metaphor of the maintenance and harvesting of the vineyard and of grapes. This was something so common to their culture, they understood it. And Jesus is using this metaphor to talk about what a relationship with him looks like. The benefits of it, the, the warnings of, of uh, sin in our own heart, there's an abundance of this kind of metaphor all throughout scripture describing that li what life with God looks like. The relationship with God, this in personal holiness, it's all over the Bible. And it's common to see fruit on the vine. Fruit on the vine is a sign of, of a healthy plant. And so fruit on the vine for these hearers would be synonymous with the visible characteristics of one that loves God and follows Jesus. Let's uh, first understand the different characters in this metaphor and then talk about um, where we're headed with it. First, there's the gardener. Jesus introduced the gardener. This is God. This is God the Father. He is the gardener. He's the, the overseer of the vineyard. He's the overseer of all that happens. He is the, the owner of the place. He is the one to who uh, all are responsible to him. He is the owner of it all. And then there's the vine. And Jesus says, I'm, I'm the vine. And he's described as the lifeblood, right? The lifeline. He is the one through the, the nourishment of God comes through Jesus to all of the branches. So all growth, all life, all um, fruit comes from Jesus, the vine. And then there are the branches. That's, that's you and me. The branches either abide in the vine and bear fruit or the branches do not abide in the vine and they wither and are thrown away in the fire, or they are pruned for more fruit. So these are the characters that are involved in here. And, and this is to communicate the central theme in this passage. It's not a theme of fear. It's not a theme of uncertainty or insecurity. The driving theme in this passage is found in verse nine. As my father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in this love. And I wanna say this so early on because often when this passage is read and preached, it causes a lot of fear. There is warning in here for sure. But the central communication here is not, you should be afraid of where you stand with God. You should be insecure with where you stand with God or else. The central theme in all of this is God the Father has loved me, I have loved you. Abide in that love. It is a, a communication of great privilege 
that he invites us into this love. And so now we want to learn more clearly, what does this love look like? What does it do for us? How do we abide in this love? And it has profound consequences for our daily life. Let's explore two main things in this passage. The evidence of Jesus' love and the consequence of Jesus' love. That's what Jesus gets into. Let's look first at the evidence of Jesus' love. This whole passage here, he's talking about his love for us, the Father's love for him, and he's talking about then our love for him and our love for others. But, but first, you know, if, if someone tells you that they love you, it is completely good and fair for you to want to see evidence of that love. It's not enough just to say, just take my word for it. Just believe me that I love you. We ought to expect to see real evidence of love when love is confessed. And Jesus expects his disciples um, and is happy to give them a multitude of answers. He expects them to be curious of, how do I know that you love me? What evidence is there that you love me? Let's look at the proof that Christ gives for his love for his disciples. And unprovoked, he offers these real evidences of his love. Here's the first one. He gives his life for them in verse 13. Christ gives himself. He lays down his life for them. Body for body, life for life. The law says in the Old Testament that it's proper to give eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. When there is an offense of certain proportion, then punishment of that same proportion is given. Jesus says, I give my body, my life for you because the magnitude of our sin against God requires not just part of our life, not part of our body, not part punishment, but complete punishment, complete wrath of God, guilt in our place. And Jesus says, I give my body for body, life for life. And he admits there's no greater love than this. No greater love has the world ever known than to give oneself fully to another in their whole life. Verse 14 and 15, he says, he gives friendship to them. Now I admit, this seems like a huge downgrade from the previous one, right? I will die for you and I'll also be your friend. It's like, well, it seems like a downgrade, right? Like giving his life is such a strong gesture of love, the strongest gesture of love. And then Jesus says, if you want another example, you're also my friends. It's kind of like, this can be seen in a couple ways, and he gives us an example here. It's kind of like, I, I love you, and I'll prove that in my giving of my life, but I also really like you too. If there's ever any doubt, you know, well, he has to love us, he's God, and that's just what he's supposed to do, but he's kind of disappointed constantly, and he's like, we're in the family, but we're, we don't have a lot of his affection. He's saying, I love you, but I also like you. And here it's the, the composition between like a servant and a friend, a servant and a friend. He's talking about the differences between the two. Greater meaning is found in how Jesus compares them as his friends and what it's like to have a relationship with a servant. Friendship is a relationship of quality, of affection, rather than obligation. It's not an, like a kind of employment. He's not our landlord. He's not our boss in the sense that uh, he just engages in this relationship and, and tells us what to do and we need to be obedient and he gives us evaluation reports you know, every quarter, things like that. It is a quality of relationship that Jesus is wanting to invite us into 
That is, he's not just present with them, but he is affectionate for them. That he loves them as friends. There are only two people in the Old Testament that were ever described as being friends of God. Abraham and Moses. That's quite a club. Can we agree on that? Those are big names. Abraham, Moses, and everyone who abides in Jesus' love are, are brought into this privileged relationship of affection and faithful love. You will never experience a greater friendship than the friendship with Jesus. You will never experience a greater friend than friendship with Jesus. He knows your faults and he loves you till the very end. When people drift from you, Jesus moves towards you. When you upset people in your life and the friendship change, changes, his friendship endures. Some friendships go, Jesus's never will. Some friendships are one conflict away from being no more. You have people in your life right now who claim to be your friends and really they're one conflict away from not being your friend anymore. And there is nothing that can separate you from the loving friendship of Jesus Christ. Nothing. So it's not a downgrade from the previous evidence. This is evidence in itself that is so beautiful. And you know, when you go through conflict and you go through hard times and many people walk away, you will find out that there's no greater friend than Jesus. We forget it sometimes. In verse 15, he goes further. He says, I share my mind with them. He shares his mind with them. Now, this is interesting. Let's talk about this. This is different than him giving them a piece of his mind, right? But he's sharing his mind with them. He's, he's telling them everything that the Father has shared with me and everything I know I'm, I'm sharing with you. In this way, we see this mutual connecting that happens between Jesus and his followers. It's not one-sided. It's not a one-sided relationship. Now, certainly there are certain aspects of our relationship with Jesus that are surely one-sided. He survives without us. We do not survive without him. We are completely dependent on him for life and he is not dependent on us. But here we see this beautiful mutual connection between Jesus and his followers. A shared, a mutual sharing with him. He shares his life with us. Not just his life for us in dying, but his life with us presently. Sharing with us. There's many hidden secrets of God that he maintains but the most essential things that are life-giving that we need, he tells us. There, this is the great beautiful thing about Christ coming and the word of God being preserved for us. He tells us, these things are in my mind, what I know, who I am. You need to survive. You need for eternal life. And unless I tell you, you will die in sin. It is such a privilege to be told these secrets, to be told the truth of who Jesus is, what he's like, what the mind and character, nature, personality of God is like. You ever received information from someone that you know maybe one or two people in the whole world know? Does that make you feel really special? Does that make you feel really privileged and honored where you know that this information is so, so 
so important, so vulnerable, so good that they don't want to share it with everyone, but they're sharing it with you. It makes you feel so special. You know, as your pastor, I know that I have the, the honor and privilege of knowing things about you. Sometimes the only other person in the world to know these things. I'll give you an example. Just last week, one of you said, no, I'm kidding. <clears throat> it's a humbling, and I don't take it for granted. It's a humbling and honoring thing to know the mind of another person. And Jesus says, I give of myself freely to you in this way as well. You know, we would never know the mind of God or the thoughts of Christ unless he tells us. And he says, this is love that everything the Father has said to me, I say to you. I've made known it to you. And this is because he loves us. He loves us. And that is evidence of his love for us. It's not a, you know, it's a, you know, it's a, what is it? A and B conversation, see your way out or something like that. He's not saying, well, there's some things, you know, this is between me and the Father and you guys are gonna figure it out. He says, no, like, he gives himself freely. Everything I know, I'm gonna tell you. Verse 15, he says he gives them, or 16, he says, I give you purpose. He gives his life, he gives himself, he gives his mind, he gives his friendly affection, he gives them now purpose. He invites them into the work that is, that is so good. Let me, let me think about this. There was a, there was a job that everybody wanted to be chosen for when I was in second grade. And that was the, um, in the 1900s to take the um, chalkboard erasers and s smack them outside. Yes? Who's with me? Yes! So the teacher would, would the teacher would, um, uh, or yeah, the teacher would call out a student. The teacher would choose a student. And said, you're going you're gonna to take these, would you take these erasers and take them outside and, and smack them together until they're clean and bring them back in? You got 10 minutes of like alone time. That was like my greatest joy. <laughs> Even then. You know, the person was chosen and it was a job of responsibility. I always wanted that job. I wanted to be chosen for that job. And those erasers were going to come back cleaner than they'd ever been before. And I took great pride in it to be chosen by the teacher because I knew it was something that not everybody got to do and it was something that I really wanted to do. It was a special job. And Jesus says, I've chosen you and I've appointed you to go and bear fruit. It's a special calling that not everybody has. What a tremendous job. What an amazing privilege that I've called you and appointed you to abide in me and to bear fruit. And this fruit will result in joy fullness of joy in your life. The evidence of love is supposed to take deep root in their hearts where he's saying, I'm, I'm involving you in this work to proclaim the gospel, to bear fruit that's honoring to God our Father and to bring you fullness of joy. It's supposed to get deep into their heart and life and it's supposed to result in love and obedience, not out of fear, not out of insecurity, but out of blessing, out of the fullness of love that was given to us. It is to take those erasers and go out with a fullness of joy and the responsibility and to work heartily unto the Lord. Not of like, I hope I get this right or my teacher's gonna scold me in front of everyone. This passage is not about feeling insecure in your relationship with God. It is about being filled and convinced of the love of God for us that we cannot imagine doing anything but abiding in that love every day. 
the tone of, of, of this is not abide in Jesus. If you don't, you're gonna be cut off. And then you'll really be sorry in your life. So make sure you mind your manners, toe the line and keep his commandments. That is not the tone of this passage. The source of obedience is never self-determination, but the conviction that we are truly loved by Jesus. That's why he spends so much time giving them evidences. I just gave you five, and there's so much more. Not today, but there's, there's more that you should read about. It's all throughout scripture. These words were given to his disciples not to freak them out, but to stabilize them in his love and to be certain of it. And his love has consequences. His love has consequences. These are the consequences of Jesus's love. We can't go there first. We have to go first to like, to this, these wonderful indicatives of God's love for us to then ask how, how, what symptoms happen in our life because of this love. Most clearly put, it, we grow. That's the analogy, that's the metaphor that we're given, that we're like a vine that bears fruit. We bear fruit. Jesus calls it fruit. Fruit is generally all the visible and sometimes the invisible characteristics of a person that loves Jesus. A person that loves him and abides in his love and follows him. Scripture names many of these visible and sometimes invisible characteristics. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. These are some of the fruits of the spirit that are evident in the life of a person who follows Jesus. So there's two ways to view our relationship with God through this. We, here, here's one way. We pursue God. We love God. We obey God. God in return rewards us, listens to our prayers, and gives us his love. So God's love in that sense his love becomes a consequence to our growth. We grow first and then he loves us. But this is not the order of this passage. And, and you really, I hope you see that. That is not the order of anywhere in scripture where it talks about the gifts of God. Jesus's love is not the consequence of your personal growth. Your personal growth is a consequence of Jesus's love. He says, you didn't choose me. I chose you. I appointed you to go and do this. Therefore, this is how we are to view our relationship with God. God pursues us. God brings us spiritual life from death. He enables us through his power to obey, to love, to honor him. He works through us. Jesus talks about fruit in this way, and often we try to increase our fruit in our life so that we can abide more in Jesus. I need to do better. I need to turn my life around. I need to work harder at this so that my relationship with Jesus can be more secure. And the order is reverse. No, we are to focus so intently on our communion with Jesus so that the symptoms of that would be a life that honors him and brings us joy. Jesus says, abide in me and you will bear fruit. Fruit on the tree does not make the vine alive. But a branch that is connected to the vine receives nourishment and bears fruit. Fruit on the tree is evidence that life is there in the branch. 
it's the same with our relationship with him. This is his metaphor. What does this mean for us today? If you don't see fruit in your life as you would like to today, your fruitlessness is not your problem, but a failure to abide in Christ is your problem. We need to be able to identify the real problem in our life. It's not that you're not bearing fruit. It's that you're not abiding in Christ. This is where we approach sin so wrongly sometimes in our life. When we see a lack of fruit, we see a lack of love, we see a lack of joy, we see a lack of self-control. We diagnose the problem wrong. Here's what I mean. The greatest sin is not a lack of fruit. The greatest sin is a lack of abiding. That's what we are commanded to do. Say, I'm struggling with lust. No, you're struggling with abiding. I'm struggling with prayer. No, you're really struggling with abiding. I'm struggling with treating others harshly. No, you're struggling with abiding in Christ. I'm struggling with being patient with my children. No, you're struggling with abiding. I'm struggling with being the good person God's called me to be, to love his commands, to obey him. No, you're struggling with abiding. I'm struggling with being pure in thought. No, you're struggling with, what did I put? Yeah, you're abiding. You're struggling with abiding. It always comes back to this. We are commanded to abide. And from that, a natural consequence will be love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control. In this entire passage, Jesus never commands us to bear fruit. Isn't that interesting? Something that's so important, he never says, you need to bear fruit. Because he knows that bearing fruit is a consequence of abiding in him. We're commanded to abide in him. To abide in him. Now he tells us, he does tell us to love. And this is, this is important. He does actually command us to love. But notice how he commands us to abide in his love. And to, to love him is to abide in him. To love other, others is evidence of our abiding in him. It's almost like this is synonymous here. We cannot abide in him without love. We cannot love without abiding in him. To command us to love him is really to command us to abide in him. We usually think that growth and character and love come from somewhere deep inside that we have to muster up the strength and the character to be the person that God wants us to be. And that is not found in scripture. What is found in scripture is actually the opposite as Jesus points out so clearly in verse five, apart from me, you can do nothing. Just when we might be thinking, okay, I know he's told me his commands. I really need to get in line. I need to muster up the, the power to do this. And then he says, apart from me, you can do nothing. Not apart from me, you can do most things or some things, nothing, no thing. Have you noticed that people who have learned this valuable lesson in life, and I know many of you have, of complete dependency on God, that he is your true friend, that he is the one you depend on, and that apart from him you can do nothing. Do you, you realize that when people come to learn that lesson, they have gone through some serious seasons of pain? You know, a, a mature relationship with God like that does not come apart from those deep seasons of agony. And he talks about that too. This is called pruning. He's cutting away at the dead parts in your heart 
the parts of your heart that are prone to wander from him, to hate him, to hate others, to not abide in him. Jesus talks about this important work of pruning. Pruning is something that God does in our life that is not pleasant, but, it's, but it always yields more fruit and more joy because it cuts away at the dead parts in our heart. None of us, if we had the chance to write our own stories, would write in God's pruning. And yet it is necessary for maturity and necessary for growth. What does God use to prune us? You could think of some of them on your own. Failure, humiliation, disappointment, pain, conviction of sin, conflict, loss, betrayal. I mean, he uses a whole host of things to prune us. He uses so many things, an endless amount of things that will challenge us in what we depend on, who we depend on, so that he can cut away those dead parts so that we can see his love more clearly. If God is pruning you, what does it mean? He loves you. If he cares enough to cut away dead parts in your heart, to bring his children pain and agony, it's because he loves you so much. And I know the feeling where you say, can you just love me a little less? You are asking things that you do not want. You're asking him to do something that you do not want. And what can you expect as a result of God's pruning? Two things. Listen closely. More fruit, more joy. Period. That's what he says. The expectation that we have from the work of God's pruning in our life is more fruit and more joy. Why are you allowing such pain in my life? Because you are called and appointed to bear fruit and to have the fullness of joy. And there's work to be done still in your heart. This is God's ultimate plan for you. It's his ultimate call in our life for all who follow him, that your joy may be full and the fullness of joy will never come to you unless you abide in him. It will never come to you unless you let him have his own way with you. It has to be his way. It has to be his way. It is the better way. Let's finish with this important insight from the passage. You know, seasons of fruitlessness is normal for those who have a relationship with Jesus. It's called winter. It's a season in other parts of the country. <laughs> it's so easy to think you're, you're looking at your life and you're seeing, I, I'm not that person. I'm not a person who's bearing fruit and full of joy. What does that mean for me? Am I cut off from Christ? Not necessarily. If so, if this is you, where you, you, you may want to examine your heart. If you are not in the place where you want to be or where you know God wants you to be, and yet you've confessed Christ as your Lord and Savior, you, you, you strive to love and enjoy him, but you know you're in a season of fruitlessness. You may want to examine how God might be using this 
season in your life to draw you closer to him and to know his love more deeply and to expose the areas of life that you are depending in and going to to provide that love and joy that cannot, that cannot compete with God's love. You're maybe the person that says, I, I, I know Jesus, I love him, I trust him, I believe him, I'm here because I want to grow, and yet I see such decay in my life. It doesn't mean you're cut off from him, but it does mean you need to give serious thought to what he may be doing in your life what he's wanting to expose. And I encourage you to repent of sin, to confess that sin before him, to trust him, to bring others into, into your life, to, to, into the struggle with you, to support and encourage you. But maybe you're another kind of person here. Maybe you're saying, I've, I've never had this trusting, dependent relationship with Jesus that you're talking about. I've never had this. I've never known this love. I've never known this friendship. I've never relied on him fully for my salvation. I've lived in constant fear of judgment. To you, I would say, now is the perfect time to make a conscience decision, to be convinced of his love and to place your trust in him. I want you to see the evidence of his love that he has given to you through his word, abundantly. And to make that decision to be convinced of his love and to trust in him. What is abiding? What does that even mean? What is an abode? It's, it's a place of dwelling. It's where you live. To abide in Christ is to make Christ your dwelling place. We are to look at the love of Christ we are to look at the person of Christ. We are to look at the word of Christ and confess, this is where I live. This is my home. This is my home. Jesus, his love, his word, and the words he says to me. Today, whether you have drifted from him or whether you have never known him, when he is, says to you, I am the true vine, he is calling you home. He is calling you back home to his love, the love that never fails. He's calling you back home to a place of joy. He's not asking you to save yourself or to earn your favor or to get your life in order. That's already been taken care of. He tells you though, in a way, in a matter of life and death, abide in him, come back home. If there is sin, repent of those sins. If there is worry, remember his words of faithfulness. If there is weakness, then reorient your life that draws strength not from your character and accomplishments and draws strength from his power that's made perfect in your weakness. Thanks for listening to this audio from Holy Cross Church. Visit us at holycrosstucson.com to find more resources and connect with us.